What's up, what's up, everybody? It's your boy, Kendall K. Hour, uh, back here again with another episode of How You Doing? Uh, this time, I have a very special guest with me, a guy I've been wanting to get on for some time. We actually uh, had a meeting scheduled before this coronavirus take place. We were going to do it in person, but as everything is going now, we are now doing this virtual. Uh, today, I have with me Dr. Taylor, uh, Dr. Scott Taylor, to be exact, from the University of Kentucky. Uh, he is a drugs and alcohol history professor. I actually took his class not too long ago, and I figured that we can have an interesting conversation and talk about the history of some drugs and alcohol on this podcast. Dr. Taylor, how's it going? It's going okay. How are you doing? What's going on? I've been doing all right, man. Just adjusting to this coronavirus pandemic lifestyle, you know, as I said, finishing doing everything virtual. How about yourself? Yeah, same thing here. We uh, finished our courses virtually, and now I'm just working in the summer, working on my book. Oh, you got a book coming up. Tell us about that. So the book is about the history of drugs and alcohol. That's why I taught that course at Kentucky, is because I'm working on a book about drugs and alcohol in early modern Europe, by which I mean between about 1500 or like 1492 when Columbus came to America, mm-hmm. and the French Revolution, 1789, or actually a little bit after that for the book, in about 1820. And so I'm looking at the early modern drugs like opium, tea, coffee, sugar, tobacco, things like that. And that's why I decided, oh, at Kentucky, I should teach a course on the history of drugs and alcohol and bring that up into the 19th and 20th centuries, which would be more interesting for the students also. So we can talk about heroin, cocaine, stuff like that. And I would learn from it and also the students would too. And it was a very interesting course. That's part of the reason why I took it, which you bring it into the 19th and 20th century, because there was a bunch of topics and things we covered in that class that I honestly didn't even know. And we'll get to that later in the show. But going more so on you, what made you go into this path of teaching drugs and alcohol and going to UK teaching and writing your own book now? Well, that's what we're supposed to do as history professors. You write books. So we spend, we're supposed to spend about half of our time teaching and half of our time doing research and writing books and articles. And so I, I've been I trained to do early modern European history. My first book was about Spain. I looked at sort of dueling and honor and violence in Spain in the 17th century. And that book was finished in 2008. And when I was looking around for someone else to do, I thought I'd like to do something that sort of was a little bit bigger than just Spain. Mm-hmm. And also would incorporate sort of like all sorts of different things like empire, the, you know, the growth of European empires overseas, the growth of trade around the world with, with Europe becoming the center of that, and also sort of the body and religion, all, and gender, all sorts of things coming together with Europeans putting these sort of new substances into their bodies, which they hadn't had before. All these things are new to them. And uh, it'd be an interesting way to get at a bunch of different stuff. Okay. So why drugs and alcohol? Like, was there something that's like, hmm, I was... That's something that clicked in you that said, I'm curious and learning more about the history of drugs and alcohol and how it originated from Europe or some of these other countries. Why did you decide to go down that, down that path? The idea of addiction was interesting because it's something we still don't really quite understand. You know, we mm. have this medical model of, you know, addiction as an illness, but that's a sort of recent idea. You know, we talked about it in the class, how that came about in like the 18th century and 19th century mm-hmm. when people in Western Europe and the United States got that idea of illness since they used to think of it just as a moral failing. And still those two ideas of what uh, addiction is are battling out in our culture today. And people who are experts on this are still changing their minds and some of them are trying to break away a little bit from the model of addiction as, the, as a, a disease. 
And so it's sort of like, you know, this thing we still don't understand, if I can get to the history of that with drugs and alcohol and the will and how people, how their minds work, right? It's sort of like really sort of basic, getting inside people's heads with studying drugs and alcohol. That's what made it so interesting. Mm. And it, it is very interesting because like you said, now addiction is becoming a more science-based and with you in your class, if you have uncovered of drugs and alcohol and just studying the addiction throughout time, whether it be from like the first known drugs of like uh, tea or coffee to now today we're seeing like opioids or cocaine. It's very intriguing how to see how these types of drugs and alcohol affects people's minds. Um, now, one thing I want that we learned in your class and one thing I found very interesting is a very key point that we talked about throughout the semester is that most drugs were created as a remedy to another drug. Now, for the audience who may not know, who may not be aware of this, can you explain this process and how most drugs throughout history were created to solve another drug, and then another drug came along to become a remedy to that drug prior? Well, I'm not sure if I would say that. They, that's certainly part of it. Most of the, um, the drugs all came about as first they started as medicines. Okay. You talked about the opioid addiction that we're going through right now, this big problem with opioids in America. And mm -hmm. of course, that was, uh, you know, we've had opium and its byproducts ever, ever since the ancient Greeks and before. And when they started making OxyContin, it was because in the 1980s and 90s, physicians around the world thought that pain was underserved. Like people are in chronic pain. If people with terminally ill you know, uh, diagnoses, they're not gonna live. You might as well give them a big dose of uh, morphine or some other opiate because it doesn't matter if they become addicted, just you know, make the end of their life more comfortable, right? Mm -hmm. And so then the Sackler company decided to make OxyContin and other companies doing similar things as a way to treat chronic pain of people who aren't terminally ill. But they thought with the time release within the OxyContin, people can't become addicted to it. But of course, immediately after they start doing this, people learn how to circumvent that by crushing up the tablets or storing it and doing all sorts of different things that are not prescribed. And it becomes a recreational drug and something that people become addicted to. And this is something that happened to all the drugs, right? Like tobacco comes into uh, Western Europe in the very late 16th century and the early 17th century. And immediately people, you know, are smoking it and it's really for pleasure. But at the same time, they thought it was a medicine. They thought, oh, this is a powerful medicine. It can help cure people, right? The thing that tobacco thought, they thought tobacco was good for the lungs and the head. They thought it would cure cancer. When, wow. they, when they talked about the curing <laughs> cancer, they meant putting the leaves on tumors that were popping out through the skin. And that was supposed to be a good thing. And it would be good for your lungs because it helps you cough up stuff that's inside your lungs. So this is the sort of thing that they thought, and that the same things happens with uh, coffee and you know, everything going up through um, LSD and cocaine and all the different opiates today, that medicine gives them a cover. And of course they sometimes very, very much so are used as a medicine. And we see that again with today with like marijuana becoming medical marijuana. Uh, LSD is once again becoming something that people think might help uh, cure anxiety and uh, opioids and things like that. But you also say that uh, the drugs are chasing each other, right? So Benjamin Rush, who was a signer of the Declaration of, of Independence, he was a very prominent Philadelphia physician. He was very much against uh, distilled spirits, right? This is a big, we, we talked about the gin craze in London in the, in the, seven, the 1700s. And 
you know, distilled spirits were new to Europeans. They had beer and wine, but they didn't have such a fast acting and powerful form of alcohol like gin and rum until the 18th century in mass quantities. It became a big problem. And Rush was very much against distilled spirits. And one thing he thought would be good is like people who are sort of habituated, as he called it, to, to gin and rum, get them taking opium instead, and this will be good. Right? And we see this throughout all of, uh, like you say, throughout all the drugs history. For, for example, um, uh, Bill W., one of the founders mm -hmm. of the, one of the main forces behind Alcoholics Anonymous, he thought that LSD helped him stay sober. So he's taken LSD in the middle of the 20th century as a way to keep off alcohol. And heroin, which was developed in the, I think, the 1890s, as a, it was a cough suppressant, right? This is a time when people had... Tuberculosis was one of the main killers in, in advanced societies and Western societies, uh, wealthy societies, I should say. And they're looking for a cough suppressant, also something before aspirin, something that could help uh, relieve pain. And they come up with heroin. And one of the things they thought heroin was good for was it would solve a morphine addiction. Mm -hmm. Now, heroin is really just a more refined version of morphine. So uh, you're just giving people even more morphine than before. Right. So they, they immediately realize that's a terrible idea. But this, this idea that you, you brought up, like chasing one drug with another drug, has been an issue throughout the history of drugs. Exactly. And that's, like I said, it is something like stuck out to me. I was like, hmm, that's pretty interesting. Because like you said, I also remember how uh, morphine, it was either morphine was used as a remedy to cocaine. Is, is that correct? Uh, probably, or, yeah. Or, or, or vice versa, uh, I don't know. Probably, right. Yeah. I remember right. that, and it was already interesting. And another thing that you pointed out about how, like, LSDs is being used to, like, kind of treat anxiety and depression, um, how, I've heard of that, and I've heard people talk about it. So can you explain why these type of drugs can kind of aid people with mental illnesses and other types of diseases going on with them? Well, I don't know that much about the science behind it. Okay. What I can tell you is the history behind it, which is that this is one of the big things that when LSD became popular in the middle of the 20th century, mm -hmm. we have people like Ken Casey and the Mary Franksters out on the West Coast who thought LSD is fun. Everyone should take LSD and it's this great recreational drug. It'll get you out of your normal sort of middle class hangups and turn you into a hippie. And that was one way of looking at it. But also people on the East Coast, people like Das Ram, and uh, oh, what's the name of that the the big famous guy, the big proselytizer for uh, Timothy Leary? That's who that's who we mean, right? Timothy Leary. He was Timothy very Leary. serious about it. He thought that LSD and also other hallucinogens like uh, mushrooms and peyote, these things are really going to be good for you spiritually. And they're going to help help you open up sort of other doors of perception and come up with a different way of looking at life. And he was very much, not so much about medicine, but about spirituality. It's going to open up a whole new way of seeing the world, LSD. And so there's the famous incident where the Merry Pranksters were on their bus trip, on their magic bus throughout the, throughout the United States. And they met up with them in uh, Millbrook, I think it was, in upstate New York in the Hudson Valley, where Leary and his guys were. And they didn't really mesh so well because they have very different visions, visions about what LSD should be for. Mm -hmm. Because LSD has been illegal for a long time, and it still is, but researchers at places like Johns Hopkins have been using it. They've gotten permission to do trial experiments where they're giving people small doses of LSD under very you know, supervised conditions. People who have terminal illness, for example, 
who are very afraid of dying, as you know, one can well understand, and how the you know, going through this experience of taking LSD can really help them sort of overcome their fear, sort of get a different understanding of where they are in their life, and it's helpful to them. And then the, there's a novelist named Ayelet Waldman. She wrote a book a couple of years ago, published it about how microdosing LSD, which is another thing that people are looking at, taking very small doses of LSD. Like, I don't know if it's daily or weekly or, or what it is, but taking very small doses, not enough to give you, you know, a so-called trip like mm -hmm. people use recreationally, but small doses that just sort of help rebalance the chemistry in the brain and, you know, have really, she thinks, and other researchers also think, helps people with anxiety and depression. And that's a very cool thing, because I remember, and as you said, in the mid 20th century, so around like the 60s and 70s, was kind of like the height of the LSD craze. And we kind of seen it die down through the 80s where the cocaine came in and the 90s and the early 2000s. But now we're starting to see, at least in my eyes, in popular culture, we're starting to see a more of a rise in use of LSD. Recently, there was a documentary that came out about it on Netflix that I watched. Uh, you see a lot of people mentioning more or being more open talking about it, whether it be some actors or rappers. And you who's, see a lot of people talking about it. I haven't heard anything. I'm so, not so much up to date on what's going on right now. So like Seth Rogen and like Kid, I know like Kid Cudi, he's a rapper. He talks about it often. Seth Rogen, they'll be open and talking about it. And the whole documentary, it was like a list of like different celebrities from like Carrie Fisher, Anthony Bourdain, uh, ASAP Rocky, some other comedians is talking about their use of like LSD. You haven't seen the documentary? Taking, are they taking trips or are they microdosing? Oh, they're taking trips. Okay. So they, they was like the whole documentary is talking about their experience with it. And it's kind of like, um, at the same time as it's using the, the documentary is used to like talk about their experience. They're also like giving tips throughout like, hey, don't drive while doing this. Yeah. Like, and it's, and it's, 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 it's funny when you look at it, but like, it's just for people who never use the drug. It's like, it's, detailing the experiences of like trips and just give these wild stories that these people went through it's very interesting I yeah forgot well, what, look that up yeah i forgot what it was called honestly i but it's on netflix and it was trending for like a couple of weeks you, you'll be able to find it it's still on there okay sounds good it's also microdosing is taken off apparently in places like silicon valley people really think that it helps them yeah people think it helps them work sort of focus better and work harder which is not at all what Leary and Casey and those guys thought that LSD should be for, but that's what, you know, that's what they're doing. That's what they do with everything in Silicon Valley, trying to optimize your performance, right? All that kind of stuff. So they're doing that there too. So it's become a little bit like Ritalin or Adderall as well. Yeah. Like drugs. And it's crazy when you think about it, because as you said, like people just microdosing it, but if you take like a whole entire, like say, if it's an acid case, a whole entire tab or mushrooms, you like, you go from just using it to optimize your abilities to like taking this, big grand trip or something yeah well this is this whole microdosing thing is is relatively new i believe it's interesting about lsd because i i at the when i introduced the 1960s and 70s mm -hmm. in the class i asked the students like how many people would know where to get marijuana right and of course the first time i asked like everyone sort of looks around and no one wants to raise their and, but then they say, I'm not going to get you in trouble. So, uh, you know, almost everyone knows where to get marijuana if they want to get marijuana, right? Right. And um, I asked him, and the point was that this is new, right? And then and before the 1960s with the sub, the, the counterculture and the hippies and all that kind of stuff, that you, it was hard to find all these drugs. They're all different subcultures. Like marijuana is found at like jazz clubs and places like that, but it's not just everywhere in the culture. And so I also asked people where to find uh, you know, if you knew where to, if you wanted to find heroin, who could find it? And it's not nearly as many people as marijuana, but it's increased right. over the last few years. 
and LSD, I was surprised at how many people, and then that also has increased, I think, over the last couple of years of LSD. So maybe LSD is having a little bit of a comeback. I feel like it is, because as I said, like it's being talked about a lot more in popular culture, and people are talking about, like, it was funny, because me and my friends were joking about it, and they were saying how, like, people... And like in the hood, we're starting to use LSDs and psychedelics. I was like, "What? They getting they? like so? It's it's becoming more accessible." But in this time, with like fentanyl be being used and like people are mixing drugs, they got to be very careful with using it. But it's becoming more accessible. And I think, honestly, when you look at some of the use of like of a LSD and how we talked about it is used to cure like some anxiety or depression. And mm-hmm. maybe if you take like a big dose of it, it can kind of give you a new look and experience on your spirituality and life itself. It can be very helpful if like with any drug and most things, if you don't abuse it, if you don't abuse the drug. I'm not advocating for any of this stuff. I'm just explaining what right, right. history is behind all these things. I'm not saying go out and take it Oh yeah, no, no, I'm, I'm not advocating it. <laughs> I'm just saying like, as we, yeah. as we said, like the use of it can be used for those positive reasons. So, and you mentioned about marijuana, uh, another, like also another drug from earlier times that was kind of looked upon as like a devil drug and now we're seeing states and more people using marijuana and becoming legal in a lot of places. Uh, right. Talk to us about how far marijuana has come in this country from being looked upon as a terrible drug and to now where people are looking at it in medical research and how it can use to aid and help people with their bodies. Well, marijuana, you know, it comes from, uh, in the United States, it came into the United States, first of all, through hemp, right? Like people, mm-hmm. even like in Kentucky, was a big hemp producer in the 19th century. Hemp, they used the fibers of the hemp to make rope and canvas and bags and stuff like that. Mm-hmm. And uh, people were also using the, the seeds and the buds to get high, although not very much because the, the hemp seeds that are grown on plantations like at Waveland here outside of Lexington, they're not very potent. Marijuana, they call it the marijuana complex, like using marijuana, using cannabis, not just for like hemp and all that kind of stuff, but mostly for the drug, using, um, you know, the buds and the leaves to smoke and to alter your mood. That came into the United States through Latin America and the Caribbean, through Latino and black people. So the early places where marijuana was being used in the 20th century in the United States was um, you know, New Orleans, and throughout the American Southwest where Mexican Americans were using it. Although there was also, it was part of the pharmacy in the 19th century. So mm-hmm. it was a little, people had, they could get marijuana, people, pharmacists would stock it, but they would, it wasn't very well known, wasn't very used. There was a guy um, in the middle of the 19th century who wrote about hashish and how he came across that. He was working in a pharmacy, Ludlow, I think his name is. And he wrote, uh, a book about his experiences taking hashish and how, you know, which is the resin of the, of the cannabis and it's much more potent and fast acting than, than marijuana. So he was, he was using hashish for a while and he wrote about that and his experiences, but that was just sort of a, it came and went and didn't become a movement. It was a little bit of a movement among Bohemian artists and writers in Paris in the middle of the 19th century. They had a, a club of people who would take hashish together poets and that sort of thing. But again, that didn't, that didn't really translate into the United States and it didn't become, I don't think, didn't blossom to larger culture in France either. So it comes into the United States from Mexico and from the Caribbean and it comes into the United States with all the sort of stereotypes that people had about it 
in those areas. And people, the stereotypes people had about the people who were using it, African-Americans and Mexican-Americans. So it was seen as dangerous because black people and Mexican-Americans were seen as dangerous and deviant, all this sort of thing. So sort of the, the mainstream white culture is demonizing it. And then you get movies like um, Reefer Madness that came out in, I think, the 1930s, warning kids against uh, marijuana and with mm -hmm. this very exaggerated sort of consequences for use of marijuana that most people wouldn't recognize as being what, how cannabis actually works on the mind and the body, right? right. And so they're using these scare tactics and they're, they're writing cartoons and sort of pulp fiction novels also warning about the dangers of marijuana. And as jazz becomes a big deal in the middle of the 20th century and white people are attracted to jazz, they start hanging out at jazz clubs and they start using marijuana and marijuana starts, you know, the beats start using marijuana. And of course it breaks out into, you know, middle-class white kids are using it in the 1960s and 70s. And that explodes into, uh, you know, white middle-class culture, right? You have kids, mm -hmm. In, in suburban high schools smoking marijuana, right? So this is, this is, this is what suburban white high schools are supposed to be about to keep the middle-class white kids away from the city, away from people of color who are doing these sorts of things. So here it is, it's out in the open now and people are panicking. So that's sort of, you know, how things got to be where they are by the middle of the 20th century. How do you, how is that transition? Cause we, we have slowly, but sure, because growing up, I would never, like I was always taught like marijuana was bad. Like they had a dare program, people yeah. coming to our school talking about marijuana is bad. But now at almost at age 22, we're seeing CBD places. Right. We're seeing marijuana legal in states, like people yeah. pushing for it. Like where, where do you see, or how do you think this came about? And why do, why all of a sudden people are looking at this as sort of, as sort of a, like a positive drug and like a useful drug in society today because as you explained it was demonized because it would got into the hands of whether it be in black people or mexican people and once it touched white suburbia people was demonizing it why do you think today people are kind of like having a different outlook on marijuana well you're absolutely right it's so much out in the other so is you where do you live you live in kentucky yeah i do i do i live in lexington right now i'm from Louisville originally Okay, so less so in, in Kentucky, but like my family went out for a Western trip last year. We were in California and we could just r rolling down the street. You could smell the marijuana just if you if you're just in the in the road, right? Other people right. driving around and smoking weed. And my two teenage daughters can now they can now they know what marijuana smells like thanks to our trip out west. So out in California, <laughs> it's everywhere, right? Yeah. So and it's it'll come to Kentucky eventually. This be the same way probably. Um, well, I think there's two big reasons why it's changed. Number one is that, you know, young people are using marijuana and they're also using heroin and angel dust and very powerful drugs, cocaine. They, you know, people realize, oh, those drugs, they're, they're different. The government treats them the same. The educational system treated them the same. Mm. But uh, marijuana is just not as powerful. It cannot destroy your life in the same way that heroin opium, angel dust, things like that can do. And so it just through familiarity, people realize that marijuana is just, it's just not as powerful. doesn't have the same, doesn't have the same highs, but doesn't have the same lows and doesn't have the same ability to really ruin someone's life the way that these other more powerful drugs are. Right. Which also made them tune off when they thought the government was lying to them about heroin, cocaine as well. Mm -hmm. So that was a problem. But, uh, 
just through familiarity, people realize that marijuana is just not as bad as some of these other drugs. And the other thing that happened was that marijuana became used once again as a medicine, right? And so that mm -hmm. you have in the, the early legalization movement in the 1970s and 80s was trying to promote um, uh, marijuana as a way to you know, help different illnesses like glaucoma, which in fact it does, I think, have some effect in, in helping ease glaucoma. And then when HIV and AIDS came along, this was the way that, oh, you can use uh, marijuana to help people who are going through that process or going through the, taking the very serious, the, the drugs that you use now to keep people with HIV from getting AIDS are a lot less severe than they used to be, but the early doses were really hard on the body. And so marijuana mm. would help with that. So this is like ways that you can use, oh, marijuana, look, it's a medicine. It's good for you. Can't abuse it. And you know, this is why the, they started to legalize it as a medicine. So you have dispensaries. And this is where it starts in places like California as a medical marijuana before it becomes decriminalized recreational marijuana. If you can use this to help people, then it becomes acceptable, right? And because you, you're looking at all these, these deviant hippies in San Francisco with their long hair smoking marijuana, that's bad. But like here's someone or with cancer, right? Oh, it helps people with cancer and uh, you know, it helps them eat if they're going through chemotherapy. So that's good. So I, when we were out in California, I was talking to my friend and she had, she had cancer a few years ago. Mm. And she said, you know, she'd never smoked weed before, but when she was going through chemotherapy, she couldn't even drink water and keep it down. And her husband went out and got some marijuana and she, I think she ate brownie or something like that. And she could drink water and she could eat for the first time. And so, you know, marijuana really helped her get through that. But she's also saying, it's crazy how much has changed. Like, you know, of course I voted for legalization of marijuana because it helped me and it's going to help people. Right. But now it's like, it's being grown everywhere and it seems to be taking over. And she's like, Oh, I don't know if I want that. Right. Yeah. So we don't know where it's going to go. And people also ask like, oh, maybe this is going to be good for Eastern Kentucky, right? They're already growing marijuana out there. Maybe it's going to mm -hmm. help the uh, economy, but it's not because California is going to take over the agriculture of that, just like they do for everything else. As well as we get into it, and that's, I know that's a lot of worry for a lot of people that when marijuana becomes so prevalent and most states start to like growing it and accepting it, people are going to worry about like the distribution of it and the potency of the marijuana once like the government get their hands on it. Do you kind of have that same type of feeling towards it as well? Well, I'm not sure if it's the government's the, the problem. The problem is the problem is twofold. Number one, the people who want to open up marijuana, they don't want any restrictions on it at all. Okay. Now you have people selling gummy, you know, edibles, right? Right. Which is fine. But if you're, you've got little kids and they find your gummy bears or your brownies and they don't know what it is, they're going to eat it and they're going to take a high dose of cannabis in their system and that's not good. Right. And uh, um, it's just, it's, it's, there's very little regulation of it and we're not sure what's going to happen. Mm -hmm. And of course, we have a whole business structure set up in place to take a plant and then process it and put it into things that you can smoke or otherwise put in your body already. And that's the tobacco industry. And they have been hammered by the fall of cigarette use. And this is a way for maybe them to make money. So now also it's like, oh, who's gonna benefit from the sale of marijuana? Is gonna be uh, the same people who grow marijuana before? Is, or is it gonna be big businesses? And once big businesses get in charge of it, they have lobbyists, they're gonna lobby for no regulation. They're gonna lobby for people taking more marijuana. Mm -hmm. um, we're gonna, it's gonna, be interesting to see what happens. This is a whole new frontier. And, and I, marijuana 
it's not as dangerous as heroin and cocaine. But if mm -hmm. you're smoking marijuana every day and you can't stop, that's bad, right? It can, yep. it can mess up your life. Just like other, not a very, you know, we talked about how addiction, our understanding of addiction has changed. It includes things like addiction to the internet, addiction to pornography. It doesn't have to be heroin. It doesn't have to be cocaine. And you can spend your whole life playing video games and ruin your life that way. If you're getting baked every day, that's that's not good right that's it's hard to function as a as a adult rational person if you're stoned all the time and so we're going to see we're going to see if that's going to happen is, is this going to lead to more people using marijuana and more people becoming dependent on marijuana or is it going to be lobbyists working for big companies who are going to try to keep marijuana sales flowing freely and uh, claiming that oh no it's all good it's fine you know we don't know what's going to happen and it'll be interesting to see all this sort of rituals and stuff that we, you know, that, that um, dictate how people use alcohol. Mm -hmm. Like, oh, you, you know, usually at night, usually with other people. In a social setting. In a social setting. Right. Don't drive when you're drunk, all this kind of stuff. We don't have those rituals. People who smoke marijuana already have rituals, but that's all dependent on it being illegal. You know, right. so the rituals include putting your... A towel underneath your door in the dorm room, right? Those are the mm -hmm. rituals that we have. Right, turn the shower on, make sure it steams it out. <laughs> yeah, so all, all that, we're going to have to come up with new rituals as it becomes, um, you know, it, it, legal and accepted by everybody. Not everybody, but by most people, right? It's be like a dinner party. Do you have marijuana before or after dinner? Right. How much? And, you know, can you have it in front of kids? Can you have it while you're watching someone else's kids? Can you smoke a joint? That kind of stuff. We don't know. That's a whole new uncharted territory. Very is very new and uncharted. And one thing, cause like I said, I've been seeing the progressiveness of marijuana use, even like it translates in sports. I've heard athletes come out and talk because yeah. they said they're, they're usually prescribed opioids and they'd rather have marijuana instead because to them it could be less addictive because going to what you said, an addiction, everybody can be addicted to something, whether it be video games or pornography, anything. People's levels of addiction are different. And they say with marijuana, they feel they'll be less addicted to it versus opioids. And MLB, they came out, I think I want to say like last year before the season started or sometime in the off season this past uh, season, they have banned, like the, like they allow, not banned, they allowed players to use marijuana. So they will no longer penalize players for that. Do you right. kind of see like more sports and companies going this direction as well? Because in kind of sharing a way, kind of staring away from opioids towards marijuana. Yeah, there's, I mean, there's definitely a movement among athletes. What mm -hmm. I know about mostly is uh, pro football. And of course, football is so painful. It but is. All, the, all, the, soup, all the, the big injuries we hear about, but just being banged up by those other super strong, super fast guys every single day. Mm -hmm. um, that, uh, that football players have been leading the charge. First, the people who have been retired, like, oh, the guy who was the, uh, the running back. He played for... Oh, Marshawn the, Lynch. I, no, I'm thinking of the the guy who he he quit football for a while because he kept getting uh, caught with marijuana. Oh. He was uh. a Texas Longhorn, and then he was a uh, Reggie. I can't remember his name, but he was he, he was a proselytizer for marijuana while he was mm. playing a little bit. Now much more so now that he's done. Mm. There's a guy named Nate Jackson who's written about it. He was an undersized tight end for a few seasons. He's he's a writer now. And he's talked about how yeah, this is you know. Like you say, what the league's answer is opioids. 
And he's like, well, that's terrible. That's bad, right? It's, it gets people addicted. And even if not, it doesn't, you know, it's just, it's a stressful thing to put into your body as opposed to marijuana. Mm. So, and as the states make it legal, I mean, it's, it's weird for the 49ers to say you can't use marijuana when it's legal to do it for everyone else in the city. Right. So if it becomes the case that all the states or the, the federal government makes it legal, then it would be hard to say to NFL players and NBA players uh, who also their bodies go through a lot, you can't smoke weed to uh, take the edge off. I mean, this is the way the bodybuilders have done it also, right? You know, there's a picture, I think, did I show a picture in class of Arnold Schwarzenegger with a huge spliff? Yeah, so this yeah. is, he's, he works out, he puts all the stress on his body, uh, lifting weights, and then they would smoke marijuana to, to take the edge off. So it's, who, who knows? I mean, it's, it's part of the whole issue with sports of performance enhancing drugs. Mm. Will marijuana be seen as a performance enhancing drug or will it be seen as just a painkiller that helps people get through the stresses of the game? It'll be an interesting question for society to answer. But if marijuana becomes legal for everybody else, it'll be hard to keep it away from professional athletes, probably. It would be definitely hard. And, I, and as far as it labels a PED, I, I don't know if marijuana could be <laughs> labeled as like a performance enhancing. I, I'm more so, like you said, on the side of like use of its use as a pain reliever because you've seen most athletes talking about, they even come out, there's some athletes, not current athletes, but like athletes that are retired and they talk about how they used it all the time when they was playing like after games. Yeah. Some players even did it before games and there have been instances where some players play good while on it, some players play bad uh, while on it. So it's very interesting to see where it goes in the future. Yeah. Another thing I wanted to talk about, um, kind of touched on a little bit, is opioids. Now, what what is it about some of these opioids and talk to us about like the history of like how these opioids can be so addictive and can ruin people's lives because we talked about like the opioid crisis that's kind of going on in kentucky and how like the power like the powerfulness and the potentness of these opioids will make them so addictive and the history of it well you know ever opium even the ancient greeks knew that opium was a very powerful painkiller mm-hmm. but you could also overdose on it and die and that uh, you could become accustomed to using it. And in the 18th century, as Europe, Western Europe is becoming more wealthy, they're able to import more opium into Western Europe and use it. And it became something that there were romantic poets like Coleridge who were using it and became addicted to opioids, to opium. That's all it was back then. And um, already just opium, just straight from the, from the poppy seed, right? Just that, that gum that they take out of it that by itself is very addictive. And then they make it into, you know, one of the things we talk about in the, in the course is that all drugs over time become more fast acting and more powerful. Mm-hmm. So you go from beer and wine to distilled spirits like you know, rum and gin. Mm-hmm. You go from chewing coca leaves to powder cocaine to crack cocaine, right? Mm-hmm. These are all more powerful, more fast acting versions of the same drug. Right. And, and the, the best example is opium. So you go from opium to uh, morphine in the 19th century to the heroin, which is an even more refined, more potent you know, version of opium basically in the very late 19th century, early 20th century. Now we have fentanyl, which is much more powerful than heroin. So that's killing people because yeah. you're getting heroin laced with uh, fentanyl and they don't realize that when they buy it. So, and there'll probably be something even more powerful than fentanyl going forward. But it's scary. Yeah. 
but oxycontin by itself you know it's, just, it's an opioid opioid is very addictive and you know it's it's gives your gives your it stimulates the part of your brain that takes away pain and and that gives you a powerful emotional rush it also stimulates the part of your brain that helps you learn things so you're learning how good this feels it's this very powerful learning experience and you become addicted to it and so it's you know once you have oxycontin out there in the society and of course you have the Sacklers, the Sackler company, the Sackler family who owned, I think it was Purdue Pharma, who was creating an OxyContin and selling that. They're out there selling it and more and more and trying to force it on people's, you know, uh, small towns, going to places like Eastern Kentucky, rural mm. Ohio, West Virginia. And they, they don't care what people use it for. They just want to sell it. And so they're giving the pharmacists and physicians more and more incentive to uh, prescribe it and to sell this stuff. Now, why rural areas? Why, are, why do we see opioid use so strong and, and heavily used in rural areas? Do you, do you know? That's a really good question. I'm not sure we do know. The first thing that went to rural, I mean, most of these things like we talk about, they, they appear in cities first. Heroin was a problem mostly in New York City. And it wasn't mm. until the 1960s and 70s that heroin really became something you could get anywhere in the United States. And it's not just New York or people who had access to New York City. Uh, and so, you know, why? So cities are the, the place where you can get, you know, most all of this stuff. Maybe right. marijuana in the American Southwest and the countryside. But cities are the places where drugs come from most of the time. And that's where they get used most of the time, you know, disproportionately. We saw the first thing that hit rural areas was methamphetamines in mm -hmm. like the 1980s and 90s and i we, we don't i don't i don't know much about that i don't talk about it in the course my own research is on much earlier time so i'm not sure why it's hit there and now of course like you say we have oxycontin and now heroin as oxycontin and other things like that have become harder to get um it's a mystery as to why this hitting rural areas more there's a couple of um economists who were working, they, they have a book out, I think last year, and they had a big study out that was the basis of this book a couple years ago, where they, they looked at mm -hmm. uh, sort of declining life expectancy in America, especially among white people. It was the first time, the last few years, is the first time in American history where the life expectancy of white people has gone down instead of up. And they attribute it to what they call diseases of despair, you know, addiction, depression, suicide, things like that. And it's hitting, like you say, rural areas, small towns. It's in the cities as well, post-industrial places. And it, it might be that, you know, sort of the way that our economy and society is structured, the opportunities for, uh, you know, the economic opportunities have all fled to the cities. It's hard to make a, a good living in a rural area these days. It's hard to make a good lead. They don't have factory towns anymore. All those, all those factories shut down in Kentucky and Ohio and West Virginia after NAFTA, when all those jobs, so those manufacturing jobs fled to Mexico and to China and places like that. You, you know, you have to go to the big city if you wanna, you know, really make something of yourself. There's not as many good jobs in these sort of left behind rural areas. So Oxycontin comes into that gap and it gives, you know, people, you know, it's there right at the same time that people are experiencing economic depression and mm. the breakdown of community. I'm not sure what comes first, the breakdown of community and then comes OxyContin, or OxyContin comes in the breakdown of community, or if it's all coming together, no one's really sure what's going on. But obviously, a lot of people now are focused on this, especially after Trump was elected three years ago or four. 
And everyone's like, what happened to America that, especially in rural areas, they would, you know, want to vote for this guy? Mm, very, very intriguing. Um, let me see, let me go to my next question here. So another thing I want to talk to, and we kind of covered a little bit as when we were talking about uh, marijuana earlier. Um, one thing that popped out to me is that how many drugs in our society was considered good at one point, but once it got into the hands of like minorities, like black people or other minorities, all of a sudden there was like an evil narrative attached to it. Why do you think this is so? I think that we have always judged, and this is not an idea unique to myself, we've always judged drugs based on the stereotypes we have about the people who use them. Um, whether it's the, during the gin craze of the middle of the 18th century, it was like urban poor people in London. And this is a time when London's population was exploding. Poor people were moving into London from all over Britain. And people were very uneasy with the growth of London, how big it was. There's like a million people. They'd never had a city that big in Western Europe before. There's slums everywhere. There's poor people. People didn't know what to do. And they, they really were afraid of and looked down on and kind of hated these poor people. When, when I say people, I mean the wealthy people in charge, the elites. And now all of a sudden, there's gin out there that's really cheap so that drunk, that uh, poor people, working class people can get really drunk for not very much money. And this becomes a big part of the panic about gin. Oh my gosh, poor people are using it. And even at the time, people would say, you know, some, some observers would say, you know, the rich, rich people are getting drunk also, but they're drinking rum punch and fancy wine inside. It's, you know, it's a hypocrisy for people to get worried about poor people doing the same thing with a different kind of alcohol out in the streets. They don't have a nice place to be inside and, and do it. So we've always had this tendency to, you know, to look at, um, look at the drug through the lens of who's using it or who we imagine is using it, right? So when cocaine comes about, it, the first time cocaine hits the United States, it comes in an injected form mostly in the late 19th century. And one of the groups of people who were using it were uh, black men in the U.S. South. And this is, of course, the time, the backlash against Reconstruction, the, you know, we have the segregation is tightening up and there's race riots against, you know, prosperous black people. In the news recently has been the, the, the riots against the prosperous black people in Tulsa, you know, in the 1920s. And this is part of this fear of black people, this hatred of black people by, by white people. And cocaine was seen to give black people, black men especially, like this superhuman strength, make them oversexed and want to rape white women. And, you know, you have to shoot them with more than just one bullet to take them down. And it's wrapped up. It's always been wrapped up. Um, who's using the drug or who people think. It's not only, it wasn't just black men using the drug, cocaine in the late 19th century. But this is what jumped out. You know, it's one of the things about how we know about this stuff is what the media is reporting. And the media reports sensational things because they want to sell copies, right? And so newspapers throughout the South are reporting on black men using cocaine and becoming these monstrous animal-like people. And this becomes ingrained in the, uh, the minds of the elite people who run society as to what's going on. And this is the way things have always been. The flip side of it, is that once you get, for example, marijuana, we don't associate, if we associate marijuana in the 1990s and 2000s with sick people who need help, that takes away the stigma of marijuana as well and becomes more acceptable for everybody to use marijuana if you, it's seen as like, oh, this is something, you know, cancer can hit anybody. We mm -hmm. might all need this sometime. And look, it's fine. 
And these people are normal people, they're just sick. And so I guess marijuana is okay. So one thing about cocaine, going on cocaine, and I hear you mentioned it, one thing that popped out to me and is used in like the, I guess it would be like the earlier 20th century, is that I did not know that cocaine was once put in Coca-Cola. That yeah. was something that I actually learned. So <laughs> talk to us about that. Like how, like how does it even come about and how is this even acceptable in society for a drug to be put into a drink like this? Well, because cocaine was new and people didn't have any experience with it. Mm-hmm. And there was no regulation. We were, we're used to the government cracking down and you know, we have labels on our cereal that tells us how much sugar there is and carbohydrates, that sort of thing. In the 19th century, there's nothing like that. And so you had all sorts of people selling all kinds of drugs and you find these elixirs and tonics, nerve tonics, people go out selling and there's no regulation. And they're putting things like morphine and cocaine into a lot of these different kinds of drugs that they're selling. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there was, there was uh, Coca-Cola wasn't even the first. There was like Vin, Vin, it was Vin Martini. There's a European drink where they used, they'd, they'd soak the coca leaves into the wine and then sell it. And this was a thing already in Europe. And so the, the guys who ran Coca-Cola, uh, the, uh, the original druggist with his little drugstore in Atlanta, he was copying this idea. So it was, cola, it was cola nuts and coca leaves that were put into Coca-Cola along with other things like nutmeg, I guess. And this is what gave it the taste, but also gave it the kick. And so this, is, this was, uh, yeah, this, was, this is what made Coca-Cola great. And once the backlash grew against cocaine in the early 20th century, then they took it out. But they put in more caffeine and sugar to make up for the kick that was, that was missing. Yeah. But yeah, all this stuff was unregulated. Like this is it's, a whole different crazy. time. Yeah. Right. <laughs> the 20th century is when you have really the growth of the American government that intrudes into our lives and tells us, you know, what you can and cannot do and what, what, you, what people can and cannot sell. Mm-hmm. Right. And so this is why you, you can never do that today. Unless something was brand new. If there's some brand new drug that somebody comes up with, and so, or some drug that we don't know much about, like uh, this used somewhere else, like cat or kava, if we, that became all of a sudden popular in the United States, it wouldn't necessarily be regulated at first. Although now it would be regulated much more quickly than, than cocaine was 100 yeah. years ago. Yeah. You know, we have government agencies now in place because of that and right. to solve and pick up on these things more quickly. Now, one thing that we haven't talked about as much, which is something you covered in your class and you mentioned it before, is like alcohol. So throughout time, I know there was like a prohibition in the 1920s. We, we are still, there is, I mean, alcohol use is still up, it's never changed. And there has never been a negative perception around alcohol, just a prohibition, but there has always been one around marijuana. What do you think of alcohol use in this nation and do you see any type of regulation going towards it or is it, is it going to pretty much stay the same or the way alcohol is looked upon in this nation? Well, I think that there, if there is regulation, right? You can only get alcohol in certain places. You can't get hard alcohol in a grocery store. Mm-hmm. Although you can get in a, can you, you can get liquor in a, no, you can get liquor in a drugstore. Yep. You can buy beer in a grocery store, mm-hmm. but not wine. It's, every state's different and every county is different in Kentucky, right? And that's the legacy right. of prohibition. When they were going for prohibition in the, in the late 19th century, the big target was the, the federal government and they got that with, the, with prohibition in the, in the 20s, like you say. 
But even before that, states and counties were prohibiting alcohol. And afterwards, states and counties still could. So there's still a dry county, it's in Kentucky. We have to go somewhere else to buy alcohol and then bring it back to your home. I would, I would say there, there has been um, negative feelings about alcohol, especially in the 19th century, back when alcohol consumption revolved more around uh, hard liquor mm. and saloons, where men would go to saloons and get very drunk. And this was what the prohibition, the sort of the temperance movement was targeting that, and prohibition was uh, targeting that as well. And you can say the prohibition failed, that's sort of the view that we have of it, but it certainly did change the way that we drink. We don't have saloons anymore where working class men go and get fallen down drunk, you know, you know, as a normal thing that, that's part of every town and neighborhood. Now we have uh, bars and restaurants and people drinking at home, men and women doing it together. Uh, we still have pockets of heavy drinking, like for example, college towns. Um, but there's also been movements to do things like uh, restrict driving while drinking, right? That's been a, the big 20th century social movement after prohibition. Um, so the way that the people think about alcohol and the way that people use alcohol does change over time. In the last, say, 20 or 30 years, one of the things that has happened is that the quality has gone up, just like with food in general in the United States and, and everything we put into our bodies, the quality of alcohol has gone up. Now you have much more, you have, you have uh, not just the macro breweries like Budweiser and Miller that sell sort of watered down, not very you know, tasty beer. You have all sorts of macro breweries now. Everybody has, every single town has a brewery. I, I was in uh, South through Bowling Green a few months ago, and there's a brewery there, the White Squirrel. They have their own microbrewery in Bowling Green, of all places. So uh, <laughs> everybody's got their own little microbrewery, and they all sell all sorts of different tasting, you know, good beer. So the beer has gotten a lot better. Wine has gotten a lot better, and, and cocktails have come back. The bourbon industry especially is booming right here in Kentucky, and, mm -hmm. you know, the idea is to get, you can uh, all sorts. You can, there's no limit of the amount of money you can spend on getting fancy bottles of bourbon. Right, and cocktail culture has come back as well. So in that sense, there's been change in the way we look at alcohol. Um, what I don't know much about is how much people are drinking compared to 30 years ago or 50 years ago. The alcohol mm. consumption has, I think, risen slowly during the 20th century, but not to the point where it was. We don't drink nearly as much per person as we did in, in the 19th century. Well, do you think during this pandemic that the alcohol consumption has went up? Because I know a lot of people have started buying more alcohol during this time. I don't know. That's a good question. So like bars and restaurants were closed down. Right. But then people will be drinking at home. Right. So drinking is changing. And whether or not that's going to be any kind of a permanent change, that's a really good question. I know that um, like for drugs, the drugs that are imported from outside of the country, their supply chain has been disrupted. So it's, I think, I believe I've heard that like cocaine prices have gone up over the last few months. I'm not sure about that. And it's all very sketchy because it's illegal. Right. So, it's hard to know. <laughs> um, so yeah, it's, it's a good question, especially if the pandemic really lasts. If we're going to be on and off social distancing and closing things down for the next year, 18 months, it could, you know, really bring impetus or cast into relief changes that are already taking place in alcohol consumption. It'll be interesting to see how that works. Well, what have you seen just in the, since you've been a teenager and being aware of drugs and alcohol among your peers, have you seen any changes going on since you were like 15 years old or whatever till now? So I'm just, so that's a good question. I'm, I see how you flipped it and asked me the question and now you the host yeah. and I am the interviewee. <laughs> right. But I, I have seen 
a change in it because me personally, I like when I first got to college, I said, oh, I'm never going to drink. But now at the age of 21, I, I now drink and I like I've seen the use of it going up. Like I see people drinking socially, whether when I go out or in the comfort of their homes. It's, it's been very interesting to see. I see people who abuse it. I see people who just drink it casually. I see people who just they still refrain from it. It's been very intriguing to see like a different spectrum because going off what you said and what we talked about earlier, just the level of addictiveness. Because mm-hmm. you can, people can be addicted to alcohol. Like yeah. it's very easy to get addicted to alcohol. But people like this, the use of it, whether it be in a social setting, or whether it be like I said in the comfort of your home, or if you're going out in the bar or something, just the use of it. It's especially in college. It's it's very strong. There's a lot of people that drink a lot of alcohol. So yeah, that's that's my view on it. Well, it's interesting because one of the things I know that people who are trying to get college students to drink less point out is that the perception is that everyone drinks a lot in alcohol in college, and that's what you're supposed to do. And in mm. fact, most people don't drink very much in college. The the people who do, it's very visible, right? Yes. You go like, what's what's the part of Lexington? where the students hang out. Oh, it's two keys, right? That's that area. So the bars right. up there, they're outdoors and you walk around the fraternities and sororities or anyway, it's just like there's drinking going on, but it's very, very visible. Mm-hmm. But it, it, so it actually, it seems like there's more drinking going on than there really is. All the people who stay in or just aren't drinking, but they're having fun doing other stuff. Um, that's less noticeable, less visible. And so one of the things that I know they've been trying to get people to say, oh, you know, only, you know, 30% of all the college students do 60% of the drinking. I'm, I made those numbers up, but stuff like that was part of the information campaign to get people to realize it's normal not to drink. You don't have to drink. You don't have, don't feel like everyone's doing it. Don't feel like this is what's normal. It's also yeah. normal to not drink or to just drink a little bit as well. Right. What about drugs? Have you seen the drug use go up or down or change among college students? And Definitely, yeah. Definitely, yeah. Because, yeah. like, as you said, like, drugs to be more accessible, and then especially in college, there's, a, like, you have different people from different places, so there's, like, new ideas or new drugs that get brought into the environment, because in high school, you're a high school kid, you don't really, or you may or may not know, like, where you can find some drugs, but in college, you can, you have more accessible, like, access to it, because you're older, you can drive to it if you want to, you're, you have more parties, so it's going to be more use of it, mm-hmm. instead of, like, where you at home in high school, you just... You may go to a party or whatnot, but you're not gonna go to like a college party where you're gonna see some people right. do some like cocaine or see people smoke or do other like different types of drugs. Definitely, it, the drug use definitely has gone on once you go to college. And I feel like a lot of people will say this is the time where a lot of people do it anyways, but it's there's a lot of people that use it. So, but for you, it's really been as you've gotten older, you've noticed it more because you're around older people. I'm, I'm, because yeah. I always, as growing up, I was always aware of it. Like I was always aware of some of these drugs were, but I never really was cognitive or seen in my own eyes, yeah. seeing how it could affect people until I really got to college. So I am now more aware. I'm like, huh, there, these type of drugs exist. And that was part of the reason why I kind of took your class was to be more knowledge, like more knowledgeable on the subject and be more aware and just learn the history about some of these drugs because it's more prevalent in my life now because I see people do it. I, see, I heard people talk about it. I can recognize what somebody talks about in a song or you see people on TV shows doing it. It's, it's just right. around me more and more. Yeah. Yeah, my older daughter, she was interested. She's been sort of fascinated by marijuana for a year or two and CBD oh. stores and vaping, all that sort of thing. I don't think she's ever tried it. Right. Uh, but 
she is for and she doesn't really talk about it much anymore but for a while she's like all curious about it yeah but that's just part of getting older you know in your it life. is like i have a friend like that he don't do any drugs but he's curious about it because it's like different there's like different type of drugs and it's like very curious like yeah. he's like hmm this seems very interesting but he never really tried it yeah so that's one thing i picked up on it what's i have another question for you i know we talked about like how marijuana kind of turned around its perception in terms of society do you see any other drugs or maybe even well i guess you can't really say alcohol but can you see any other drugs turn from a negative perception that people looked upon like looked down upon it as to a more a positive like can you see some another drug being used more positively in society today well marijuana and lsd have been the two big ones we talked about mm -hmm. already the only right. other thing I'm not sure, but sort of uh, amphetamines become reinvented all the time. So like ecstasy and Molly, mm. or whatever they're calling Molly these days, it's really a form of, of amphetamines. Right. And so if you call it methamphetamine, everyone knows that's bad and scary. If you call it Molly and you're at a club, oh, let's, you know, that's fine. That's, that's right. different. And so uh, in that sense, there's been a change. In, and again, it's in a subculture. It's like dance clubs and that sort of thing, young people. So... I'm not sure if that's what you mean, but maybe in that sense, amphetamines keep going through a cycle where they get renamed and rebranded re as a new kind of a drug. And then people either get tired of it, it either gets adulterated and it's no longer as good as it used to be and has more side effects mm -hmm. or people uh, become wary of it as they see people taking it too much and you know having their lives get messed up by it. Otherwise, it's, it'll be interesting to see what happens to things like Adderall and mm -hmm. Ritalin which again are prescribed for for young people who are hyperactive and then people use it to you know they who aren't prescribed at all use it to study or i don't know if people use it recreationally i'm not sure but that's another thing where sort of the idea of these drugs our feelings about them are a little bit up for grabs yeah that's i i don't know about adderall because i like that's a medicine that's used to like for a cure or like help with adhd correct yeah, yeah, I, it, 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 I can see some people would saying they use it like recreationally, but not as like like constant use as you see like a marijuana or like alcohol. Yeah. But it could, I can see some people using it, but like where it be used for like I know some people talking about it use it to like help them focus on like studying for like their homework assignments and stuff like that. Yeah. So I I think I probably could be like a drug that could possibly go and like change or be looked upon as like a benefit more than a hindrance to somebody's like mental state or just physical body right um what so tell us about this book so when can we expect your book coming out yeah well any? it's due at the press in a year from now okay. and then i'll take another year for them to you know tell me about some revisions and then i'll make it so it'll probably come out about uh, 2022 but it'll be about uh tobacco and chocolate coffee and tea sugar opium uh and distilled spirits and it'll be out yeah in about two more years it'll be it'll be out there on amazon you can buy it then all right be on the lookout for that uh thank you thank you dr taylor for joining me today on how you doing appreciate you all right well, thanks for having me all right no problem you all take care it's been a great episode of how you doing peace out